Well, I picked up this uh, section of Romans during Advent because I thought it was actually a pretty decent Advent theme. Advent is about waiting and about longing and about maybe suffering until God fulfills his promises. And of course, the incarnation is the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. The resurrection, Jesus' ascension is the beginning. But we still live, in a sense, in Advent. And I think that that touches on what Paul is getting at in this section of Romans. And the thing I've wanted to highlight is suffering. That suffering is a key part of the Christian life. Um, Sometimes I think we think that the book of Romans is about how to get to heaven when you die. And it's not that Paul doesn't have a lot to say about that and that God cares about what will happen to his people after they die, but he's really not addressing that in the whole book of Romans so much. He's addressing how we live now. So it's not so much about what will happen to us after we die, but how we will live now given the, the proof or given the gift of the gospel. So the book of Romans has to do with the calling of the people of God. It has to do with their vocation in life. What are they called to do? What are they called to be? How are they called to be? And how are they called to do what they're called to do? Adam's destiny was to rule over God's creation with God. And that is our destiny too. That is the destiny of every person that bears the image of God. We are called to rule over God's good world with God. And God will make that happen ultimately. We share that rule. Jesus comes and fully lives out that rule, that role. Um, But we are now taking up that. And it looks different, though. It looks different because of sin. It looks different this side of the sin of mankind because the rule of God is now opposed. And so when you look at Jesus' life and his ministry, he comes to rule, and it looks like losing. It looks like defeat. But as we know in the scriptures, it really is the way that he is coming to rule, really is the way he is coming to bring God's rule over creation. So because of sin, the calling to become co-rulers with God involves suffering. And part of what Paul wants to tell us in this book and in many of his letters is that suffering is a feature, not a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. We often think, oh, something's going wrong. Something's bad. Why is this happening? And Paul would have us understand this is what it means to take up the vocation to be co-rulers with Christ, shaped into his image, this side of the consummation of history. It's a feature, not a bug. And the scriptures repeatedly call our attention to the Old Testament figures who are called to rule and yet experience a terrible degree of suffering before they enter into their rule. Joseph was called to rule, given dreams that told him he would rule over his family, yet he went into slavery and went into prison before he came into his power. Moses had a sense that he was called to deliver his people, but he wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before he came in to doing that. David was definitely called by God, anointed by the prophet to be the king over God's people, and he wandered in exile before he enters into glory. Everybody understand what I mean? It's a feature, not a bug. If we are called to be followers of Jesus, we are called to share somehow in that suffering to experience that suffering in some way. When Jesus seemed most defeated, he was actually glorious. 
the Gospel of John, when, it's, when the, the Greeks come and they want to see Jesus, he says, now is the Son of Man lifted up. This was the glory of the Son of God. It's this paradoxical glory because the rule of God through his Son in a sinful world looks like crucifixion. There's a terrible movie. It's, it's an awful movie that is from the 80s that I always think of when I think of this. This paradox of Jesus was the actual ruler of the world, but he looked like a loser. And it's this movie called They Live, and it's about this alien invasion, and there's this, this drifter who finds a pair of sunglasses. He's actually a, world, a, a, wrestling, a wrestling star. But anyway, he finds this pair of sunglasses, and whenever he puts it on, like half the people that he sees are aliens. And he's like, I mean, he's freaking out. And all the billboards that would be advertising something, when he puts the glasses on, it says, consume, don't think, buy. Right? And it's this vast conspiracy. And when he has the glasses on, he sees what's really going on. And when he takes them off, it looks like normal. And that's a lot of what Paul is thinking with when he's thinking about Jesus. He looks like the average Jewish Galilean who is ultimately crucified by the ruling power on the earth. And he is actually the king of the universe. And Paul is calling us to share his rule. And Paul says, we're going to look a lot like him. Sometimes it's going to feel like we are losing. Sometimes it's going to look like we are losing. And Paul wants to say, actually, we're a part of what God is doing to heal the world. And we should not lose sight of that. Amen? Very often in life, the people of God will feel or seem defeated. It will seem like we have failed. Paul is not assuring us that we get everything we hope for. He's not assuring us that we get that job that we want. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But he is assuring us that because we're in Christ, we are sharing in what God is doing to heal the world. And when we experience sorrow, anxiety, suffering, we are sharing in the messianic sufferings of Jesus. This is what Paul has been saying up to this point. And then we get to these passages that we're going to look at tonight. And this is the hallelujah chorus of the book of Romans right? It, it handles Messiah, the hallelujah chorus is what everybody waits for and what everybody wants. This section of Romans is Paul's greatest hits, I think. It is the, some passages that we're very, very familiar with. Um, it's the rhetorical high pitch of this whole section of Romans. He is bringing it all to a head in what he says here. And it's not something so much to be studied, and here I am talking about it. It's not something to be studied or read so much as it's something to be sung something to be rehearsed with joy, almost like something you would read um, to remind yourself of who you are and who God is and what life is all about. So what I want to do is just point out some things that are going on in this text and then just make one simple encouragement and challenge at the end. So Paul loves questions. He loves rhetorical questions. You can track the, the argument in the book of Romans as he throws out questions. And in this question, he throws out four questions. In this section, he throws out four questions. The answer to which everyone is nobody. Okay? And let me just read them. Who can be against us? Nobody. Who shall bring a charge against us? Who is to condemn us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Paul wants to say, nobody can separate us from the love of God. And he does it with these questions. When he says, who can be against us? He says, it's God who's for us. So who can be against us? You can't stand against God. 
He says, who can bring a charge against the people of God? Well, it's God who's doing the justifying or the vindicating of his people. Nobody can stand against God and bring that charge. Who is to condemn? This is my favorite part. He says, Christ died. And then he says, and this is very important, more than that, he emphasizes this fact that it's not just that he died, it's that he died and that he rose. Jesus can't condemn us. Who's going to separate us from the love of God? Nobody. So Paul is pulling out all these rhetorical punches, all these strategies for getting our attention by asking these questions. And then, of course, he lists this list of seven and then ten things that we might think, well, that might maybe separate me from the love of God. Seven and ten. It's interesting because in the Bible, seven is a significant number right? Completion. But 10 is also a significant number. So it's, it's as if Paul is deliberately picking these numbers because he's saying anything you might think could be thrown at us that might separate us from the love of God, I'm going to list them and they can't. So he lists seven threats. And he says things like life and death, just the natural course of human life. Death can't separate us from God's love. This is where I have to make a sideline. In the Song of Solomon, yes, the Song of Solomon, at the end of the book, in chapter 8 and verse 6, it says, love is stronger than death. And I would submit that through most of the history of the world, that's not our experience. We love people dearly, and they die or we die, and we're separated. But in the ministry of Jesus and in his resurrection, that comes true. Love is as strong as death. Love overcomes death. And I think that's probably something of what's in Paul's mind. So he mentions seven threats to our lives. And then he mentions ten powers that could potentially be arrayed against us. He says an angel or a demon, they could be arrayed against you. He mentions these powers and principalities. He mentions all these categories. And Paul wants to say, you can't think of anything in creation that could separate you from the love of God. I know sometimes people ask, can Christians be demon-possessed? However we might answer that question, Paul wants to say, nothing, including a demon, can separate you from the love of God and Christ. And then I love verse 34. Verse 34 is very important because it is the most compact and complete verse in all of the New Testament stating all that Christ did in his life, in his ministry. During this time of year, we celebrate his incarnation, but that's just the first step. And Easter isn't just the last step. What does Paul mention in this section? Well, he mentions Christ the Son. And of course, here he references Genesis 22, and I'll get back to that in a minute. And we often, he says, the Son was handed over. He died for us. And this is where the gospel presentation often stops. He died for your sins. Yes, it's true. But Paul wants to go on and say more. He says, more than that, all right, more than that, he was raised. And this is important because the scripture says, actually, Paul says earlier in Romans in 425, that he was raised for our justification. We often think, well, he he died for our justification. No, he died to bring forgiveness. He was raised for our justification. He was raised to vindicate us, all right, to make us his people. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. We sang about it in two of the songs tonight. This is where all the sacrifices of the Old Testament system aimed, the presence of God. 
from which Adam was exiled and he could not get back without dying. This is where all the sacrifices aim and this is where Christ's ascension brings us. The flesh of Adam into the presence of God again because of the ministry of Jesus. And then he says, and even now he is there interceding for us. I said a minute ago that Jesus is the worship leader. That when we gather, it's not me or Kelly or Peter or whoever that sort of plans things out in the service. It's Jesus Christ who has made ready everything beforehand. And every time we gather, he is interceding to the Father on our behalf for our gathering, for us, that the Father would bestow gifts on his people. Another feature of this section is that Paul makes a quote or an allusion to three different scriptures. One is Genesis 22 where it says, he spared not his own son. This is almost the exact wording of Genesis 22 when Abraham is asked to offer up Isaac. And he did not spare his son Isaac, but offered him up. Now, remarkably, God is saying, Abraham didn't spare his son, neither did God spare his son, but he gave him up for us. That's from Genesis. And then behind a lot of these statements, particularly uh, who will accuse the people of God, this comes from Isaiah 50 and actually several places in Isaiah. So it comes from the book of the prophets. And finally, the psalm that Kelly quoted, or the psalm that Kelly read, we are like sheep for the slaughter. This is from Psalm 44. These are each from the four different, or excuse me, the three different sections of the Old Testament that Jews broke up the Old Testament into, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And this is Paul's way of saying all of Scripture speaks unanimously and together to what I'm saying about God's love being for us and what God has done in Christ. I also point out that I think that Paul has in mind, because he's been saying this all along, that the Trinity is here, that the Trinity is for us. He said, the Father did not spare his only Son, but gave him up for us. That the Son died and rose and ascended and is interceding for us. And he doesn't mention the Spirit explicitly, but he says that the Spirit makes us more than conquerors through him who loved us. I think Paul has in mind that God, all of God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is for his people. Paul coins a word here, more than conquerors. I, it just doesn't catch it. It's something like super conquerors, right? It, the word doesn't occur anywhere else in Greek literature. Paul made it up to say, at that time when it seems like we are the losers, the Spirit of God inside of us makes us super conquerors, absolute dominators of everything on the field. Again, this is that paradoxical victory of the people of God. What Paul is getting at in this whole section is that we as the people of God would have assurance of God's love for us, that we would have this confidence in God's love for us, that we would know it and if we're honest, often we don't know it. Often our reflex to bad things is, why is God doing this to me? Well, he's, he's making me pay. He's, he's getting back at me for something I did. Paul wants the people of God to have a deep, deep-rooted confidence that they are loved. And Paul says, here's how you know. Paul is speaking about confidence. Uh, you may have heard cogito ergo sum. Latin people, what does that mean? Latin students, cogito ergo sum. 
Any Latin people know what it means? Come on, Marcel. This is Marcel versus LLS. <laughs> Anybody? I think, therefore I am. This is, De this is what Descartes said. He was looking for certainty of how we know. Well, I think, therefore I am, that was his assertion. There's a grocery store chain in England. It's kind of like their Kroger. It's called Tesco. One minister in England says, today what people say is, Tesco, therefore I am. I shop, therefore I am. It's my consumption, it's my buying, it's my uh, disposable income that makes me what I am. Paul should, says that where we should take our identity, where we should set our feet is, I am loved, therefore I am. I am loved by the invincible love of Jesus Christ, and that is the basis of my identity. Not what I know, not what I've accomplished, not anything that I bring to it, but because he has loved me. It's like what God says to Israel in Deut Deuteronomy. He says, I didn't pick you because you were the biggest. I didn't pick you because you were the best or the smallest. I picked you because I love you. Or he says, I love you because I love you. It's rooted in the love of God. And again, this is not based on what seems to be the case. Paul, again, is underlining that things don't always work out the way we hoped and planned that they would. But at the root of our identity, it should never shake our identity as the people of God. I am loved of God through Jesus Christ. And that is who I am. And that is what makes my life matter. Finally, I want to speak to the context that the, this church in Romans probably was experiencing. Probably this was a small group of converts, maybe no more than 80 to 100 people, probably most of them slaves or recent ex-slaves, probably most of them living on the wrong side of the tracks in Rome in tenement housing, uh, wooden structures that often would catch fire and burn down. They looked like the losers. And I think Paul is trying to encourage them. He wanted them to understand that, again, things aren't as they seem in this world, and especially not for the people of God. For the people of God, they are at the center of God's love, and they are more than conquerors. And I think this is relevant because our context isn't exactly the same, but think about some things about our context. I'm reading a book, it's a really great book, and this guy uh, is using a lot of data to point out that the last 25 years have seen more people leave the church in all of our history as a country. That's a bad sign. We're headed for what promises to be a, to say the least, interesting and probably ugly political year in our country. There's wars abroad. Many of them look like they might spill over into something larger than just regional conflicts. And I could just, not to mention whatever personal sources of anxiety, sorrow, or pain are in your own life. We all have a little bit of experience of all of this. And Paul wants to say, in all this, we are more than conquerors. Why? Not because we have enough faith, not because we're smart enough, not because we have the right theology, but because God loves us through Jesus Christ. The key to our victory is to stand at the center of God's love and receive it and believe it and let that be our identity as the people of God. Amen? So this is Paul's heart in this letter, that, that the church would be confident in the love of God. 
And I think we know the love of God, but I want to suggest, or we know it theoretically, but I want to suggest that rehearsing the love of God, reminding ourselves of who we are as the people of God, is maybe the most important Christian discipline. To remind ourselves that we are not our accomplishments, we are not our sins, we are not our consumption, we are not our reputation with other people, we are not our success in business or work or anything else. We are the beloved of God in Jesus Christ, and that's our identity. But we're called to be a people who have allowed that identity to shape us because there's a vested interest in somebody else shaping your identity. There's a vested interest in somebody else telling you, well, you are happy if you buy this product, or you are successful if you have this ideology, or if you look inside yourself, you'll find your true identity. And Paul wants to say, no, your identity is found in the gospel that comes to you from the outside. It comes to you from the outside, and it sets you free from anxiety about your spiritual condition so that you can say, I'm loved of God. What else matters? I'm loved of God. I'm loved of the God who created the world and entered the world and died for me and rose again and is at the right hand of the Father. Paul wants his churches to have that identity deeply rooted inside of them. And here's part of why. When you have assurance, you're no longer thinking about yourself. When you're worried about where you stand with God, you're oriented on yourself. Isn't that interesting? You can have a kind of a belly button gazing concern about where you stand with God. And Paul wants to say, receive the love of God, steep yourself in the love of God, set your roots down deep in the love of God, and you will stop worrying about your standing. And you will start getting interested in other people. Other people need you. They need your good deeds in their life. They need your service. And when you're rooted in the gospel that comes from outside of you and you receive it, you get more and more freed up to stop worrying about yourself and to start being interested in other people and serving them. Amen? Isn't it interesting? We can do good for our neighbor because of spiritual anxiety. And it, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You know, somebody's, I don't know, they think they're supposed to do it or the pastor told them to do it or they're worried about their, their condition and they do something to you or for you and you can sort of feel like it's coming from that place. But then when you feel love that comes to you that's not tainted with anxiety about themselves, it's just genuine interest in the good that they can do you with God's help. It's a glorious thing. And that's what God wants to free us up for more and more in his love. That we can be a people free to love because we are deeply loved. Let me just say one last thing. I think a lot of the times when people suffer, we become Job's comforters, right? We, we become Job's comforters by... Maybe we're quiet for a little while, but eventually we say what you're supposed to, we're supposed to say. Well, you know, the Bible says. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Somebody says, well, the Bible says, and your, your stomach drops a little. You're about to get a sanctimonious sermon. Uh, this frees us up to do what the Holy Spirit does. Maybe just groan with people. Not have to say anything. To be a living testimony to the fact that they are loved by God in Christ. To be, maybe in that case, a non-speaking 
uh, version of the gospel that comes to us from the outside. Beloved. Beloved. So at any rate, my challenge tonight is that we would be a people who practice the love of God. We rehearse our identity. We rehearse. It's astounding, but I'm precious to God through the work of Jesus, his son. And that is who I am. And that is what I want to live my life from. Amen? Amen. Let me, uh, why don't we...